0: Good afternoon. Today, we have joining us from UMass Medical School, Dr. Do Kim. Dr. Kim received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, and then went to Harvard to acquire his PhD, where his studies focused on neurotoxicity and neurodegenerative disorders. And more recently, he was a postdoctoral fellow in David Sabatini's lab at the Whitehead Institute at MIT. I went on to join uh, UMass Medical School in Worcester as an assistant professor of molecular cell and cancer biology in 2015. Um, and Dahoon has done some very nice work um, as he's established his independent laboratory, focusing on how to use um, toxic metabolites that are generated by cancer cells against the cancer cells for therapeutic purposes, which he will talk to us about today. Uh, Dahoon was also the recipient of a Young Investigator Award from Sioux, the SU by Foundation, uh, Korean Foundation, uh, very substantial Young Investigator Award, so he's set financially for, you know, for the near future. <laughs> uh, and I should mention that Dahoon is also here as uh, part of our Dartmouth UMass Cancer Seminar Series that we have established this year to try to foster collaborations between our two <coughs> institutions. Dahoon does not have any financial interests with respect to this activity anyway. <laughs> Does not intend to discuss off label or investigate, investigation or use of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Dohun? Right. Thank
1: you, Todd. Can everyone hear me? It's a pleasure to, to visit this campus and to share some of our, uh, our recent work uh, that uh, we've been working on for the last uh, uh, slightly past uh, two years since, uh, since I've started the lab. Um, the work that I'm going to present is still in the devel- developmental stages, so please feel free to interrupt me at any point if there's uh, anything that I didn't explain well There are any uh, constructive or non constructive criticisms, (laughs) it's okay. But anyway, please, it would be great if uh, you just comfortably interrupt me at any point and have this be a a little bit of a discussion as well. Okay, great. So I don't have any uh, financial interests. Uh, I study, my lab studies cancer metabolism. And one way to look at cancer metabolism is to look upon it as the methods by which cells, including cancer cells, take imported nutrients and convert that into something useful, uh, such as generating uh, energy in the form of ATP generating the building blocks required in a proliferating cell, or to maintain redox homeostasis. As you might imagine, different types of cells have different metabolic demands and have different metabolic strategies. And in the case of a cancer cell, as is the case for rapidly proliferating cells, they have some key features, such as uh, a, a hugely... Uh, elevated import of glucose, and that through changes in the intracellular metabolic network, that translates to uh, a a high upregulation of biosynthesis. There's a lot of building blocks that are upregulated. Uh, There's also an upregulation of resources towards redox homeostasis. Surprisingly, cancer cells don't really seem to have uh, increased energetic demand or changes to uh, specifically increase their energy. And perhaps the best known example uh, in the cancer metabolism field uh, is is what you may have heard about, uh, the Warburg effect. And the Warburg effect states that cancer cells import a lot of glucose. But surprisingly, instead of respiring it, instead of fully oxidizing the glucose, they um, undergo um, fermentation, even in the presence of oxygen. Uh, in other terms, in a cancer cell, this is the uh, center, uh, a central carbon um, met- metabolic pathway. There's a series of enzymes referred to as glycolysis. And in the form of pyruvate, uh, the downstream product of gly- glycolysis, pyruvate will enter the, mit- the TCA cycle in the mitochondria. And the the succinate and NADH that's formed from uh, each TCA cycle is closely coupled to the electron transport chain. And in that manner, one molecule of glucose, if fully oxidized, will yield 36 molecules of ATP. But as I just described, cancer cells don't really seem to do that. Uh, Oh, sorry. Before I get there, there's a couple of important shunts that I should first mention, which is that at the level of fructose 6 phosphate, uh, these carbons from glucose can actually be diverted to something called the pentose phosphate shunt. Ultimately, this is used to generate the ribose 5 phosphate backbone in DNA, it is also used to generate NADPH, an important uh, redox molecule. At the level of 3 phosphoglycerate, Uh, There's also another side pathway called the serine biosynthesis pathway. In a series of three enzymatic reactions, this 3-phosphoglycerate is converted to serine, and then this serine can be broken down in a couple steps to provide one-carbon unit, and those carbon units provide the carbon for uh, nucleotide synthesis, such as purine biosynthesis. Uh, The carbons themselves become the donors for the methylation reaction. Also, again, in the process, nadph is also produced. In a cancer cell, they have high import of glucose. But interestingly, that glucose mostly does not end up in the TCA cycle. Instead, there is a switch in the isoform of pyruvate kinase, which uh, uh, catalyzes the phosphoenopyruvate to pyruvate conversion step. Instead of PKM1, as is expressed in most tissues, Cancer cells and other rapidly uh, dividing cells, such as in the embryo, they predominantly express the PKM2 isoform. And long story short, PKM2 is much less active. It can be down-regulated compared to the more constitutively active PKM1. That provides a bottleneck so that less of the carbons are able to follow through down to the TCA cycle. And as you might imagine, that bottleneck creates an accumulation of the upper glycolytic intermediates and there are more carbons that are available to enter the pentose phosphate shunt and the serine biosynthesis pathway. And what you might appreciate here is that in this manner, instead of using glucose mainly for ATP, this is strategically favorable because most of the carbons end up uh, in the form of redox and biological building blocks, which you might imagine a growing cell needs in much higher demand than actually compared to the ATP demand. So that's one known strategy, and perhaps the best known example of how cancer metabolism can be changed. But that's just one example. And um, uh, my lab believes that, again, there's a whole within the entire metabolic network of cells that consists of uh, roughly 1,100 metabolites that are direct substrates and products of 1,872 metabolic enzymes probably there are many, many changes uh, that are yet to be fully understood in cancer. So we've been really tr- trying to take a step back and not focus on one pathway. And aside from energy, again, as you might, I just I have this screen to show you that really all aspects of cellular biology is closely intertwined with metabolism. These are the actual, within the metabolic map, the location, for example, for CTP, for, uh, for uh, dTTP, for DNA biosynthesis, for the individual amino acids, and uh, even uh, epigenetic mechanisms, such as acetylation, require a plentiful supply of acetyl-CoA. That has to be metabolically provided. And then, as I mentioned, again, the TCA cycle and the ATP that's produced will fuel biological processes such as uh, actin remodeling. So we visualize the metabolic network as, the, as that. In every cell in our body, in every given second, there are constant activity, sort of a, a subway train passing through the, the, the different stops. Each dot here is a metabolite, and each line that connects the different dots is the enzymatically catalyzed chemical conversion step. And so imagine this, except times a thousand, I guess, uh, uh, and I could only manually animate so much. (laughs) (laughs) During my postdoc work, uh, I, I won't talk about it today, but I found one example of toxic metabolites that within this metabolic network, there are certain metabolites that if they were allowed to reach high levels would be highly toxic to cells. And that got, as I started my, uh, my own lab, we really wanted to try to build a system out of this. We wanted to look uh, almost brute force and try to see, okay, what kind of metabolites within the metabolic network are toxic? And the more we looked, the more we found. We found that surprisingly high amount of metabolites are toxic. And some of the examples, there are many classes, and and we've been trying to organize this better, but we find that out of the naturally produced metabolites in our cells, there are many reactive aldehydes, such as methylglyoxal. These reactive aldehydes will react with with any biological molecule, lipids, DNA, proteins, and modify them. there are many pro-oxidants that will generate reactive oxygen species. There are uh, many uh, excitotoxins that uh, uh, that will trigger uh, uh, receptor and uh, such as calcium influx and cause toxicity. That way, uh, there are some interesting uh, metabolites that appear to mainly work as toxic analogs, such as the well-known example of uh, alpha uh, as a two hydroxyglutarate which looks similar enough to alpha-ketoglutarate that it will, uh, it will uh, impair the, the Jumanji domain uh, and uh, DNA demethylases and affect DNA methylation that way. And that can be an oncogenic mechanism. Uh, another example might be deoxyuridine triphosphate, DUTP, which, if plentiful enough in the cell, then the DNA polymerase cannot really distinguish between DUTP and DTTP and starts to randomly incorporate DUTP, and you can get toxicity that way, for example. And these are just some examples. There are many uh, uh, metabolites that we don't really understand why they're toxic. And that might be very interesting to figure out in the future, uh, which begs the question, if there are so many toxic metabolites in our cells, then how are we even alive? And uh, so one way to look at that is that these toxic metabolites are going to be very transient. Uh, That's required. The idea is that if you have that toxic metabolite as part of that pathway, it's going to be rapidly metabolized onto the next step unless you were to somehow block that enzymatic step so that you would uh, have an accumulation and that would be very bad for the cell. And so you might Uh, uh, strategize that if we were to impair such a metabolic, if we were to identify the enzymes that specifically work on these toxic metabolites, we could could designate them as detoxifying enzymes. If we were to uh, block them either through knockdown, knockout, or an inhibitor, then you can poison a cell, you can kill a cell that way. Could you do that to a cancer cell? That's the the main question, the main kind of trick that our lab begins to look at cancer cell metabolism by. We start with that, and then we try to find additional information. <laughs> How do you get specificity in a cancer cell, though? If you were to impair that, then wouldn't that be bad to any, any cell? And so we use a traffic analogy, uh, the analogy being that if you have construction or a fender bender that causes a traffic pileup. That's always going to be worse if it happens on a busy road in rush hour instead of at 3 a.m., for example. The same analogy we use, we try to see if where are the high traffic areas in a cancer cell. We can predict this. We, we currently predict this using uh, just gene expression data mining from metabolic enzymes. So that's a rough estimate. And this is just an example of the kind of metabolic activities that we predict to be upregulated in a prostate cancer cell compared to a regular cell. And, but as you might imagine, you could do sort of this prediction for many different types of cancer cells, possibly even on an individual personalized basis. Uh, you can even apply this to other disorders outside of cancer. So, uh, uh, if, you, you know, if, if anyone has uh, uh, some unusual metabolic changes occurring in a cell, and you suspect that either that could be used to kill a cell, or maybe that's already causing overproduction of toxic metabolite that may play a role in pathology, um, I'd, I'd be, uh, our lab would be ha- happy to help out and try to you know, help you figure out if that might be the case. <laughs> So in this case, in the case of tumor, uh, a prostate tumor, you might imagine that some of these metabolites that lie along these upregulated pathways may be possible targets. We could try to accumulate these preferentially in a cancer cell. Again, just a uh, traffic analogy again. It, 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 we always find it useful to view metabolism and the flux of metabolites as simply traffic of cars. Uh, we've begun, to, so this is kind of, uh, I'd like to say that we're the first uh, to kind of think of uh, cancer metabolism that, this way, to try to systematically attack cancer cells that way. I think we're the first. And uh, so we've been trying to kind of develop a methodology, develop some rules, and we find that very logically, if you have an A to B to C metabolic pathway, very simplified pathway, and B is a toxic metabolite, then like I suggested to you, if you disrupt enzyme 2, that should be very detrimental to a cell. Uh, And that, importantly, another important part of the equation is that toxicity should depend on enzyme 1 if this is a rate-limiting enzyme. If some cancer cells have an overexpression of enzyme 1, then we predict that they will have a greater problem when you knock down enzyme 2. And conversely, you can possibly inhibit enzyme 1 and prevent the toxicity. To try to do this systematically, that dot plot that I showed you, we, we, we actually pretty much manually made. Uh, we've been trying to build what, what I'd like to coin the endotoxone, uh, just a set of all endogenously produced metabolites that have toxic properties. And uh, this is still a very, very rough work in progress. But the general idea is we take all the substrates and products of the 1,800-something human metabolic enzyme, in our cells, and we cross-reference them to government-provided toxicity databases. As you know, when you buy any chemical from Sigma, there's an MSDS. There's been a a basic level of safety testing that's been done. uh, Formaldehyde, we all know that that's very nasty stuff, but actually formaldehyde is naturally produced in our bodies, in neurons, for example. There are many examples like that. So by cross-referencing the... The toxicity data that's provided for these metabolites, uh, we've been able to find that a a surprisingly large number of these metabolites are toxic. And so right now, we're just kind of roughly calling it the endotoxone. We're very interested in the 228 downstream enzymes that will convert that toxic metabolite to a non-toxic metabolite. And so we'd like to call them putative detoxifying enzymes. And these may be, again, Possible cancer targets if that active that activity metabolic activity is higher in a cancer cell than compared to a normal cell And to try to explore these questions We've been doing a lot of troubleshooting. Just trying to use uh, P uh, CRISPR lentivirally transduced CRISPR knockdown in different cancer cell lines Uh, What we like to do is examine these detoxifying enzymes across a panel of 12 different cancer cell lines. And we try to find these detoxifying enzymes, which ones kill cancer cells, which one kills some of the cancer cells, but not all of the cancer cells. Because generally, we find that if something kills all the cancer cells, that means that's just an essential metabolic enzyme, and that would never end up being therapy. But if you have something that hurts, some cancer cells but not others, then that's the beginning point for us to try to figure out what was different about these four or five cells that were not hurt compared to these six or seven cells that were hurt. Then we can try to, again, look at what are the conditions that determine its toxicity. So what we do is we take these cell lines and we look at the whole population of cell lines when we've infected them with the P. CRISPR and we select them. So every cell should be selected, should have the lentiviral risk, and it should be, we find it to be very, very efficient. But uh, there's still a lot of problems trying to get that to work across 12 different cell lines. Every cell line has different, slightly different infectivity, has very, sometimes very different growth rates. What about just generating out of 12 different cell lines just three or four clones out of these knockout. That's one one thing that we've explored as well. That's a huge problem because, first off, it takes forever. Um, if you pick out three col- clones, we find that there's often very high variability between the three clones. Sometimes the cells will even look completely different. Uh, hopefully we didn't mess up too much there. But um, also, uh, the problem with looking at anything toxic and, and getting a clone, what you're doing is you're getting the cells that have successfully rewired, or you're selecting for cells that are somehow able to uh, survive that toxicity. So that won't work very well for us as well. Um, Another problem is that the CRISPR system itself, uh, regardless of whether it has many off-target cutting sites or not, even if it's quite clean, is still going to generate a mild, mild genotoxic stress early on. And especially Uh, Compared to uh, when we were working with shRNA uh, lentiviral delivery, because the construct you're also delivering Cas9 endonuclease, if you have greater than one MOI, if you go over three MOI, for example, that's never a problem with shRNA lentiviral delivery. It becomes a huge problem because now you just get random toxicity from having too much Cas9 expression. So we had a lot of these hurdles, but we still felt that working with CRISPR had so much advantages in terms of reduced off-target effects and the very nice efficacy that so we tried to uh, get this to work. And this is the best solution that we came up with, and it's been working quite well for us. What we do is every CRISPR, p crispr lentivirus we make, we individually titer. And that's not a huge deal to do. You can titer many of these viruses at once. We know exactly the number of infective units. We know the exact infectivity of each cell line compared to one another. We've, we've, met, we've uh, experimentally tested that. Now, we set these up in 96-well formats so that each well, uh, this can be any one of 12 different cell lines. It's going to get a calculated, very low amount of infection units. So that after, um, after four days of selection, we get up to somewhere between 100 to 200 selected cells per well. We've pre-calculated it that way because we don't want to have to, uh, it would be impractical to try to passage these cells in a 96 cell format, for example. We give them enough room. We only uh, calculate it for a few cells. We ensure that no cell will get more than one Cas9 uh, uh, virally transduced. And then when we let them grow for five more days, now what we do is we measure the overall ATP level of the entire well, which is going to be a proxy for how much cells there are. And then we, we take one, and we have a duplicate plate where we also take a measurement at day 10. And simply by looking at all the transduced cells, the cell titer glow signal from the transduced cells at day 10, divided by day 5, we can co- compare dozens of different conditions, and they seem to be even with when you have variability in the growth rate, when you have variability in the infectivity, that's all internally controlled for, and that system has has worked well for us. Uh, yep. In this manner, we started out by testing out 22 candidate detoxifiers. Only about 10% of those detoxifiers that I was telling you about. We started with a more kind of... Uh, cherry-picked approach for pathways that we thought may be very potentially interesting in cancer or were not understood at all in cancer. And so out of that initial uh, uh, CRISPR approach, we got two hits, GRHPR and CFS2. If I have enough time, I'm going to mainly talk about CFS2. If if we have enough time, we'll briefly talk about GRHPR. Uh, We have much more data for this, and this is quite preliminary, but uh, these illustrate the approach of using toxic metabolites in in cancer cells. So this is an example of what we might see when you knock down a canned putative detoxifying enzyme. This is what we saw with CFS2. This is that growth rate parameter that I was uh, telling you about. And these black bars is the normalized set to one growth rate for the same cells infected in parallel with the control non-targeting guide. And you you might appreciate the three blue bars are the growth rate when they've received the CRISPR guides to this enzyme called Cephas-2. And as you can see, there's high variability, and we like to see that. There are some cells that actually seem to be growing better when they've lost Cephas-2, and there are roughly half of the cell lines that are impaired even during the early course of five days after uh, selection. And so now we can see what's going on here. Is this something we can work with? But first off, I, I, I do have to mention that CFS2 is part of the selenocysteine biosynthesis pathway, a pathway that we, uh, we're we not familiar with at all. And uh, so, okay, what's the selenocysteine biosynthesis pathway? What's selenocysteine metabolism? As you know, we, we need a selenium is a micronutrient. We need a little bit of selenium to survive. We don't need a whole lot, but we need a little bit of selenium because selenium in the form of uh, inorganic selenium, the main form being selenate and selenite, these will be converted through a series of uh, uh, reactions to first produce hydrogen selenide. I'll just refer to this as selenide for simplification. And that will be converted by cephas 2 it will be phosphorylated to form selenophosphate. And then that will be uh, further processed by a bifunctional enzyme SEPsex to generate the selenocysteine tRNA. That's, the, that's another amino acid aminoacyl tRNA. It's the 21st, referred to as the 21st amino acid after the 20 common amino acid. It only encodes 25. It's only used in 25 proteins in our entire uh, uh, genome. It looks similar enough to cysteine, but it has a selenium atom instead of a sulfur atom. And that confers, due to the different nucleophilicity, it makes, uh, when this is present in the active site of these selenoproteins, it is important for the enzymatic activity. If you replace that with a cysteine, you can artificially do that, but it will generally be much less active. Not only that, but it's required to even translate these selenoproteins, as you might imagine. So we, we need this in our bodies. The 25 selenoproteins uh, have a variety of functions, but a large number of them. Roughly 9 out of the 25 are key redox antioxidant um, uh, proteins, such as glutathione uh, peroxidases, which reduce, uh, which reduce proteins, biomolecules, and metabolites by using glutathione uh, bioredoxin reductases, and some uh, thyroid hormone metabolizing enzyme. And that's why if you have a selenium deficiency, one of the uh, symptoms that you'll see for prolonged deficiency is gout because the body cannot make thyroid enzymes. So now the thyroid gland is being enlarged to try to compensate for that. So that's the usefulness of this pathway. And so most of the players in this pathway are already known, but what is not known is what kind of role this pathway might have in a cancer cell. That was not known. Also, this step, there were some hypotheses, but this was not known either. What's this first step? Selenite to selenite conversion. And, and, and And we'll get back to that. But one thing that I should mention is that like many things and like many of the toxic metabolites, while it may be useful to have these metabolites in micro quantities, micronutrient quantities, if you have too much, it can be toxic. Selenium is an excellent example of that. This is why I had that weird picture at, the, at my introduction slide. This is a painting of Marco Polo in his Silk Road Travels. And he wrote in, in, in his diary that when he was traveling the Suzu region of, of Western China, he wrote that it's a fact when they take that road, they cannot, so he's talking about the camels and, and horses and such. They cannot venture amongst the mountains. Oh, actually, yeah. They cannot venture amongst the mountains with any beasts of burden, excepting those accustomed to the country, on account of a poisonous plant growing there, which, if eaten by them, has the effect of causing the hoofs of the animal to drop off. And uh, people are not sure, but many people hypothesize that he was actually observing. Selenium toxicity at that point because that region is rich with the Astragalus genus of plants. They're super selenium accumulators. So, this is an example. If you have too much of it, it can be very toxic. And why is selenium toxic? It's not well characterized, but it's generally thought that it's toxic because of the selenide moiety. The selenide moiety is very pro oxidant, it will react with water and generate uh, uh, superoxide. And so, if you ingest either selenide or some of these other upper uh, inorganic selenide form, they will eventually be converted to selenide, and that's where you get the toxicity. So that was interesting to us. And we immediately hypothesized that the reason why cephas 2 was toxic, at least to some cells, is because it has to convert selenide to what we think is the non-toxic selenophosphate. That was the first hypothesis. But what we... Uh, also need to worry about is that, well, aren't these proteins very useful? By blocking this pathway and blocking the uh, synthesis of selenocysteine or tRNA, couldn't that be a problem for the cell because you're not able to generate enough selenoproteins? And so that's something that we're trying to answer. Another thing that the reason why this pathway was really interesting to us is, if you remember, I mentioned that in order for it to work in cancer, there has to be some sort of cancer cell selectivity. The, and the pathway has to be hyperactive in a cancer cell. And we suspected that this may be the case because very, even from very early on, as early as 1966, it had been appreciated that this upstream precursor of the selenocysteine pathway, selenite, tends to preferentially localize in tumors so much so that it was briefly uh, uh, tested out as tumor labeling agent. And as you can see here, although although there's also high enrichment in the liver as well. But that got us interested. We thought that, okay, this could mean that this pathway may be more targetable to a cancer cell than normal cells. What we first tried doing was knocking down the downstream enzyme. Instead of s 2 we tried knocking down CepSex, and this should prevent selenoprotein production, which we do determine, using GPX4 as a marker, you do lose selenoprotein uh, expression, but because cephs 2 is uh, ATP-coupled enzymatic uh, uh, step, it's, it's generally thought that this will not be reversible. So, even if you uh, inhibit sep we don't think that you will get hydrogen selenide accumulation. We don't think so, and Accordingly, we find that when you knock down sepsex in cancer cells, they are hypersensitized. Again, using this total cell title glow as total amount of cells remaining on the wells after treatment with tert-butyl hydroperoxide, which is a lipid peroxidating uh, toxin, we find that the cells that have sepsex knockout are highly, highly sensitive compared to the control cells. <clears throat> But, well, what about the cells themselves if they're not challenged? If they're not challenged, when we compare the, the response of these two enzymes, um, the cell's response to losing any of these two enzymes, we find that compared to the toxicity that I was talking to you about when the cells lose the cephs 2 enzyme, when they lose the CepSex enzyme, there was very mild toxicity. If you keep growing them, eventually, Uh, after a few weeks, if we try to uh, maintain the cells, the cells start dying off uh, worse than this, but we think that, so there's a window where you have acute selenide toxicity, and then later on you will have detriment, but that takes much longer because you're losing selenoprotein expression. So, so far, it's supporting that the selenite detoxification, not, not absolutely proving, but it's supporting that selenide detoxification by CFS2 may be important in some cancer cells. <laughs> I can't really call this synergy, but we can boost the toxicity of CFS2 uh, knockdown by supplementing additional selenite to the cells. And we find that compared to, this is already um, 100% is set at the growth rate of the cells before the selenium treatment. This means so that when you have this lowering of the bars, this is the additional toxicity that you would see in addition to what you would expect simply from CFS2 toxicity or simply from uh, selenite toxicity. We find that it's much more toxic when you put the two together. Again, that supports that it's a role of CFS2 to detoxify selenite. It's a toxic gain of function. One thing that's missing is a, a huge problem that we have that we need to solve before we can say this with more confidence is we need to directly measure selenide. And no one so far has been able to do it ever because hydrogen selenide when you, uh, is volatile, so it cannot be measured using standard LC-MS or ICP-MS or even chromatography approaches. We're trying to find uh, different uh, derivatizing agents to try to capture hydrogen solenoid and quantify it that way. But that's ongoing. So I have showed you that some cells are, uh, I, sh- I showed you earlier that some cells are very sensitive to losing CFS2 and some cells are not. Why? And so we got a lot of uh, good information by just looking at that uh, problem. We postulated that these cells uh, just like we saw that some tumors are, are thought to preferentially accumulate selenium within the tumor, we thought that maybe it's a, it's a problem of how well they uptake selenium. And we did find, it's, it, uh, I don't know if you can see the line here, we did find that the selenium uptake rate of these cancer cells more or less linearly correlates with how sensitive uh, they are to the knockdown of sfs 2 So that supported that theory, that maybe these cells are more sensitive to cephas 2 knockdown because they're more actively uptaking the selenium, and they need to detoxify the selenide even more. We looked at all the enzymes plus about seven or eight putative selenium transporting enzymes. There hasn't been a consensus in the literature which one it is, but we took those, and we took the top SLCs or transporters, that were enriched in the sensitive group compared to the insensitive group. And, and we singly tested all of them for, to see if how much toxicity or how much loss of total cell quantity there is upon high-dose selenite treatment. And we found that the cells that had knockdown of SLC7A11 were exquisitely rescued. So these guys could tolerate that high amount of selenite. Furthermore. That occurs because, uh, not for some indirect mechanism, but they actually don't uptake the selenium inside themselves. We can do a total selenium assay and find that SLC7A11 prevents the uptake of selenite into these cells, into the knockdown cells. We find that, as we might expect, just like with, we saw with the CEPSEX and we see with the sep 2 knockdown, knockdown of SLC-7A11 also decreases, although to a lesser extent it decreases selenoprotein expression as well. So, so far it's supporting that this is the mediates the selenite to selenite step, and possibly can either act as a transporter or some sort of a mediator of the selenite to selenite conversion. Finally, we can knock down we can knock down SLC7A11 preemptively and then look at how the cells respond to fs 2 knockdown. And as you can see here, there is a partial but uh, significant rescue. That means if the cells lose SLC7A11 and then they lose fs 2 they're not as hurt as if they simply lost fs 2 without losing the upstream. Again, this supports the idea that this uh, transporter is required for or... or put, generates the detoxification demand for selenide, and that's why you need CFS2. That was very interesting to us because slc 7 a 11 independently of selenide, has been studied a lot in cancer research. Uh, It's been uh, studied extensively in, in numerous tumors recently, and that is because of its known role as a cystine importer. It's an antiporter that exports glutamate and imports cysteine, the oxidized version of cysteine. It's been shown to be overexpressed in many cancers, including glioblastoma and triple negative breast cancer. And because when you import cysteine, you, the, the, you use that cysteine to ultimately generate glutathione, that SLC-7A11 expression has been linked in many studies to a greater chemoresistance of cancer cells. It's a way for them to become more chemo-resistant. And now what we're trying to say is that those very cells may be targetable with CFS2. And it would make a lot of sense because, again, this is what's known about the X- XCT antiporter. It imports cystine, and you get, you use the cysteine that's produced from the cysteine to produce the glutathione, a key antioxidant molecule, What we're seeing now is that that same pathway, that same transporter, also feeds selenium import and feeds selenoprotein expression, including the very same enzymes that use this glutathione as an enzyme. So it does make logical sense that the same transporter is boosting the the cell's ability to import selenium to create the selenoproteins and also to create the glutathione that the selenoproteins, such as glutathione peroxidase, use as active group. And that in this case, the best way to kill a cancer cell would be by knocking down cephas 2 and poisoning them with selenite. That's the working model right now. And like I mentioned to you, there's a selective upra- uptake of selenium in cancer cells that was already previously appreciated. <laughs> And we believe that that's the basis for why when we've tested, we've tested two other immortalized cell lines. So far, we've looked at four non-transformed immortalized cell lines, and we have not seen a toxic effect of s 2 knockdown in the normalized cell lines. So we believe that this is likely to be, at least to a degree, cancer selective. And so, so you can see the kind of logical approach that we try to take to use these toxic metabolite-producing pathways to selectively kill cancer cells. And I, and I talked to you about these rules, and so far the selenocysteine pathway seems to follow all of those rules. And because uh, I have some time left, I'd also like to talk to you about the second hit that we got. We think is really, really intriguing, but it's quite uh, preliminary data right now. So. Yeah, one of the things, and, and uh, the key thing that we have to do is test this in in uh, mouse models. We'd like to see, make sure that this sort of mechanism works under in vivo context and the amount of selenium that you might see under there, and we want to see if we feed the mice on selenite supplemented chow, that we can get even more toxicity by doing that. On to the second hit, GRHPR. What's GRHPR? It's part of Hydroxyproline degradation pathway. Hydroxyproline is degraded through a series of steps, ultimately generating what we classify as the toxic metabolite glyoxylate. Actually, both of these, both of these are toxic at high levels, and the reason for that is because if you have too much glyoxylate sitting around, it will form oxalate, which itself will precipitate to form calcium oxalate crystals that's the main, that's not the only, but that's the main constituent in most cases of kidney stones. And that's the same calcifications that you see when you have a, a mammogram. And the same sort of calcifications that you see that's often associated with malignant breast cancer. One of the main components is calcium oxalate crystals there. GRHPR is believed to function by processing glyophyllate to glycolate And that's going to prevent the oxalate accumulation. And that's why if you actual human patients that have lost the function of GRHPR, they have a a syndrome called hyperoxaluria, where they have huge levels of oxalate and they have a series of systemic problems, including, again, those kidney stones. Why might this be important in a cancer cell, though? We thought that a really, really intriguing aspect of hydroxyproline is that really the only place that you see hydroxyproline is in collagen you don't the body is unable to generate free hydroxyproline. The body generates hydroxyproline residues by post translationally uh, uh, hydroxylating proline that 's already on proteins such as in collagen or in elastin eighty to 90% of the extracellular matrix is composed of collagen. And out of that, 15% of all residues in collagen is actually hydroxyproline. That's a huge amount. The extracellular matrix is really where you have non-free hydroxyproline. And as you might imagine, if you break down those collagen, such as by matrix metalloproteinases in an invading cancer cell, and you ingest and degrade that hydroxyproline in your lysosomes. That's where you're going to get free hydroxyproline. So, while not proven, we hypothesize that in a cancer cell that's in a collagen-rich environment, namely cancer cells that are in the invasive front, such as in breast cancer. Now, this uh, diagram is a little bit watch, washed out, but you, but as as, uh, as pathologists will tell you. Um, Uh, you can very easily distinguish the collagen of fibrils just from a a normal hematoxylin and eosin staining. And you might imagine that a cancer cell that's beginning to invade into a non-cancerous region will encounter and will have to break down through the expression of collagenases and matrix metalloproteinases, this extracellular matrix, to provide the space for it to invade the surrounding areas. So that is already a known feature of invading cancer cells. They express extremely high levels, of MMPs, they express extremely high levels of collagenase. So, we hypothesized that might then GRHPR have a de- detoxifying role in invading cells. <coughs> now the answer to that is that we're just beginning to really ask that question, but we have a few really, really intriguing uh, preliminary findings, which is that we do find that cancer cells if you feed them hydroxyproline, they are able to process oxalate. So that's known. That's not I mean, that's not surprising, but it just uh, does show that they have the capacity to process this hydroxyproline to oxalate. But the really, really interesting thing is that when you culture GRHPR knockout, when you knock out GRHPR in cancer cells, you do lose viability. And that viability is enhanced when you culture the cells in collagen instead of just in standard plastic plates. So we believe that what we may have here is uh, a manifestation of the increased hydroxyproline slash glyoxylate detoxifying demand in possibly a a cancer cell that's invading into a surrounding, although we need to test this using, obviously, more relevant invasive models. Another really intriguing aspect is that when we look immunohistologically at GRHPR, when we look at from the same tumor, when we look at the bulk region and the invasive front, it's very tantalizing to we we think that the cells have much higher expression in the invasive front and it's tantalizing to speculate that the cells that are right at the interface of the collagen seem to be expressing the highest levels of GRHPR. So again, very preliminary but uh, might this pathway be also kind of accounting for the already known association with uh, calcium uh, uh, calcification microcrystals that's already recognized to be associated with uh, invasive and malignant breast cancers? Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, So these are, again, uh, you know, ongoing studies. But we believe that we're finding examples uh, of being able to exploit toxic metabolites specifically by targeting these cancer-activated pathways or cancer, relatively cancer-specific pathways. We take advantage of the cancer cells' upregulation of those pathways to selectively poison them. And uh, so most of this work was done by uh, Anne and Megan, grad students in my lab. And uh, please, uh, we've already uh, really enjoyed this kind of joint uh, uh, seminar series. uh, where We've had uh, 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 several of your group visit here at our (coughs) school, so we we look forward to uh, continuing that. Thank you very much for your attention, and I'd be happy to take any questions. Yes, Alan. Is the calcium oxalate that would be toxic to your cells? It's known. Calcium oxalate, if you have it at high levels, it it has been observed to form extracellular and intra- intracellular crystals. We're not sure if that itself can be toxic to a cell, but what we have going, you know, going by this is that having a lot of oxalate and Increasing that oxalate through GRHPR knockdown makes the cells worse. So we're, we're, we're not sure whether that really requires oxalate crystal formation or not. We don't know at that point. That uh-huh. uh, cells are very good at regulating calcium, but there's many ways to disrupt intracellular calcium. You can get huge spikes of cytoplasmic yeah, calcium. Yep, yep. I'm wondering what happens if you were to combine Oscillate, oxalate yeah, with yeah. To the spike in calcium. That, that that's a really intriguing thought. As you mentioned, yeah, the, the cell level would be much lower. So is that rate limiting in how much oxalate crystal formation there would be? And how would that compare to the toxicity you get of the calcium influx? Maybe if you had some way to moderately enhance calcium influx in a manner that would not kill normal cells. <laughs> okay. But that, 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 that's, that's certainly an uh, uh, intriguing idea. We, we haven't uh, um, gotten to that point, but we'd love to try to push this system by, again, by adding, uh, feeding more hydroxyproline. Again, the whole idea with these toxic metabolites is that you can modulate how effective it is. If it wasn't quite enough to get the toxicity that you wanted, it's very feasible to feed the mouse and ultimately the human uh enriched diet. And then it's all about that therapeutic window, how much more toxicity you can get in a cancer cell compared to a normal cell. It'll have to be tested, but at least the option is there. Or if it's too toxic, we can restrict the input and try to make it a little bit milder. But, but anyway, that's a great point. Yes?
0: I was wondering what strategies you're, you're thinking about to, to inhibit STEP S2 and, and
1: GRPH. Uh, can you make small molecules to those enzymes? It's generally, it's generally thought that metabolic enzymes are a very attractive target to companies because they're enzymes, so they, they, they should be inherently druggable. Worst-case scenario, you can just try to design analogs to the normal substrate. Uh, we're not ac- experts on that part, and that part we haven't been, in, you know, in, in the 2.3 years that I've started my lab. that That's something that we want to explore in the future, but right now we just want to do everything all, do all the functional assays, do combinatorial knockdown with the detoxifying enzyme and upstream, and get all the information that we can for the mechanism, and propose that one could design an inhibitor, and that would be the next step. Uh, Again, uh, theoretically, most of these enzymes should be druggable. I wonder if you've considered um, simultaneously uh, applying, along with the inhibition of your detoxifying enzyme a tumor-specific growth-promoting stimulus, because it would seem to me that if you could flog the pathway, you would accentuate the uh, accumulation of the toxin, and you might also highlight the deficiency of the product of the pathway. I I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. So... Uh, create a metabolic catastrophe, basically. yes, yes. I, yeah, I, I think that, that that's a that's a valid and interesting way to look at it. Uh, yes, again, some of these upregulations are based on the fact that these cells are rapidly growing. You add a mitogen, and you could probably enhance the pathway even further, get it to work even better. That's a great suggestion. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, um, so what you're selecting for, if I'm wrong, are synthetic sick, not synthetic lethal, because you're a lot. Of- you're asking for them to grow. Do you think that any of these enzymes was knocked out by CRISPR by going to kill certain tumor cells, and then you wouldn't be able to pick them up in your asset? So right now, uh, just for uh, efficiency's sake, our main kind of bread and butter is a 96-wall approach that's very conducive to just looking at many, many different cell lines, many, many in a matrix, many, many different guides from many, many genes, look at a lot of combinations at once, and we measure with cell titer glow. But that doesn't tell us if the cell titer glow signal is lower, whether that was because... Uh, some of the cells died, or maybe none of the cells died and they just grew slower. So once we see that, then we start to look into detail. It does appear that the CFS2 phenotype is mostly a dying-off phenotype, but we we, we do have to characterize it. We feel that in many of these cases, and in my previous postdoc work, again, you can uh, uh, trigger acute cell death. In some, I'd like to carefully argue that this should be much more acutely toxic than starving a cancer cell, where oftentimes, generally, depletion strategies uh, often can result in slower growth and uh, cytostatisticity, but p- perhaps you could get a rewiring. I don't know how well that occurs or not. But here, depending on the toxic metabolite pathway, if we have a really, really nice toxic metabolite pathway, we think that we should hit, be able to hit them with a really acute punch to kill them. But, that, but it, it probably depends on a case-by-case basis.
0: Yes. So um, it seems like this would work really well on, as, as Bill pointed out, the rapidly dividing cells. Which there's a lot of various drugs that target those cells. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It seems like there's cells which are more quiescent.
1: Which yeah.
0: Avoid yeah. The things that are targeting rapidly. So, so have you thought about that?
1: And like, how would this fit? Yeah. Uh... Um, true, uh, a very rapidly growing cell, there's already very good ways to target them selectively. Is this better? Uh, in the example of GRHPR, the second example, preliminarily we believe that that's a process that's not really related to how fast a cell grows, but more to how much collagen is degrading. Uh, so that's one example. Uh, there are many examples that, of metabolic changes that have been characterized because of the differential metabolism of a rapidly proliferating cell versus a non-rapidly proliferating. But again, if you had what you think is a a good model for a cancer stem cell versus a non-stem cell, or a more resistant uh, uh, refractory cell compared to a less refractory cell, and you were able to see without worrying about why you see the differences, you were able to pick out the differences. And, and if some of those differences were not necessarily related to cell growth, maybe it has something to do with some of the fidelity mechanisms of, of a stem cell or just different transcriptional targets of a stem cell, then that still gives you a way. It could be something as even as uh, mundane, I shouldn't say mundane, but it it could be something, nothing more than because a metabolic enzyme is in an amplified region, and that just happens to be overexpressed due to it being in an amplified region, and and it's enough to drive that pathway. Uh, Again, it's really a case-by-case basis, but I still feel that there's going to be many, many metabolic changes, and and as you saw from the map, many, many targetable metabolic pathways, I mean, toxic metabolite pathways that we're going to be able to utilize in a specific cell type, regardless of whether the change was due to uh, rapid growth or not. That's, but, but again, uh, we're, we're kind of, again, showing the first few examples before we try to really kind of outline a good system, I guess. I guess that's what I'm trying uh, So So I, I think Marco Polo made a very astute comment, observation. That was the native horses and or camels survived. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mechanism of resistance. So I guess these, uh, I didn't read enough into it. I just I I wanted to show that picture. But um, I would presume that the native animals know how to not eat from those plants. They know not to eat from those plants. And, and, the, and those kind of Marco Polo's uh, traveling caravan would just non discriminantly eat. It's either, yes, either they learn what to eat or they're resistant to what they eat. Yeah, yeah, I I can't, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Um, I I should also mention that, again, the the reason why people already appreciate selenium toxicity to the extent that they do now, a large part of that is because in the Great Plains, when there was like this big livestock, uh, there were some regions in the Great Plains that also had these Selenium concentrator plants, and that became a huge problem in livestock, kind of uh, the business where uh, cows were doing very badly. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not very, you can find many regions, including in the US, where uh, that would be a problem. Yeah.
0: Any more questions? Thank you. Okay, thanks,
1: everyone.